You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So last week, if you weren't here, uh, I would strongly encourage you to get on the podcast or whatever and, uh, and listen to last sermon. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll try to touch on it, but man, Raz really he he hit it hard, and uh, and it's it's a it's a passage that's often uh, taken out of context um, of the Sermon on the Mount. I'd say there's probably two uh, sections that are probably uh, taken out of context the most. Um, the first one is. Uh, um, don't judge lest you be judged, right? That's the favorite uh, or the most common non-Christian verse uh, to quote. Um, and, then, uh, and then last week uh, was the, uh, is the other passage that's probably most, uh, most frequently misquoted, uh, which is ask uh, and you will, uh, you will receive, uh, knock and you will find, or knock and you will, it will be open to you and seek and you will find. Um, this passage is often used and Raz uh, kind of made this explicit uh, in the prosperity gospel, uh, prosperity gospel preachers often use this text uh, to say, see, God wants you to have everything that you ask for, right? Uh, but that's absolutely not what Christ is talking about. Um, and, uh, and Raz made that very explicit. If, and again, if you weren't here, uh, Luke 11 makes that very, very clear. Uh, it's a parallel passage. Jesus says the same exact thing, uh, but he says, ask and the Holy Spirit will be given to you, right? That's, uh, that's the, uh, the, main, uh, the main point of that. So, Reason why I'm talking about that, and I do want to make at least that clear, is because that feeds into uh, today's passage, um, which is Matthew 7, uh, 12 through 13. And, uh, and so uh, it just flows straight from this, uh, this whole idea of, uh, of asking and receiving. Um, and then uh, Christ kind of extends uh, the analogy uh, because he ends with knock and it will be opened to you. And he extends that analogy to a narrow gate. And that's where we pick up today. So I'm going to, uh, to just read the passage uh, and then uh, we'll get into the points and then we'll pray. So Matthew 7, 12 through 23. Jesus says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who will enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and those are few who find it. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from bad fruit, nor can bad trees bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. The three points that we are going to be discussing today is that Christ is warning his disciples. Christ warns his disciples to be careful of the path that we choose, the influences in our lives, and our relationship with God. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you today um, seeking wisdom and guidance in our lives. We desperately want to understand the words of our Lord. However, in our fallen state, we, we can't hope to understand the, the depths of what he's, uh, what he's communicating to our broken lives. I ask that you, you please work in us through your Holy Spirit, that you reveal to us the words of Christ in powerful ways that transform us and sanctify us and shape us into the image of Christ. And I ask that you just move in your church and speak to your people through this message and through your word. And we love you. And I just thank you for everything that you've given to us. But most importantly, I thank you for sending your son, offering us salvation and offering us life more abundant. We love you. Amen. So the first point that we are going to be talking about is that Christ warns his disciples to be careful of the paths that we choose. And like I said, the passage just previous to this, uh, Jesus was just talking about uh, knocking and it will be opened to you. Uh, And then he gets into this idea of enter through the narrow gate. So you see, he's extending the analogy here. Um, what would you be knocking on? Christ doesn't say, he says, just knock and the door will be opened. And so it would be some kind of door or almost like a gate, right? And so, uh, like I mentioned, Luke 11 makes this very explicit where Jesus is talking about ask and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And if that wasn't convincing enough, if you still believe in the prosperity gospel uh, after last week, Uh, We can actually see here that Jesus makes this explicit in the exact text or just a few verses later where he says, knock and it will be opened to you. What will be open? The narrow gate that leads to life. This is what is being offered to us. Ask for eternal life and it will be given to you. Knock on the gate that leads to life and it will be opened to us. So this context is very important. So let's just read uh, that section uh, or the beginning of this passage one more time. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who will enter through it for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, a little bit of historical context, Uh, most cities or kind of at least fortified cities uh, within the first century, they had multiple gates or multiple entrances to a city. Um, Now, the way that they actually did this is there was there was kind of wider gates or major gates that people, they kind of wanted people to funnel through so that they can monitor who's coming in and who's coming out. Uh, Often these wider gates were used uh, as a way of taxing the people because if you're coming in, say you're a merchant, if you're bringing a lot of goods into the city, uh, the only way to get into the city with all those goods is with a bigger gate, right? So if, uh, if we have bigger gates, we know merchants, we know people that are bringing a lot of goods into the city, they're going to be coming through those gates and it's through those gates that we would kind of monitor or tax the people as they pass through. However, there were also more narrow gates and those people that passed through more narrow gates, they couldn't bring as much with them. 
And so what's interesting about this is that Jesus is, is he's drawing this comparison between this narrow gate and a wide gate and a constricted path and a broad path. Now, these paths don't lead to necessarily the same city, although you could argue that God's justice is the path that leads to destruction. However, uh, they end up in two very different places. And there's obvious uh, implications for this, right? Um, there's, uh, there's a lot to be expounded on here. Um, and there's also a parallel sermon that we could preach on this. Uh, if you guys are familiar uh, with Jesus, when he deals with the rich uh, young ruler and he tells his disciples, uh, surely I tell you, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples throw up their hands and they say, how is anyone saved? And he says, anything's possible with God. With men, that's impossible. But with God, it's possible. Jesus is talking about the same concepts here where it's a narrow gate is what leads to life. But how do you pass through a narrow gate? You would have to reject the things that you hold so closely to. It's almost as if you would have to leave the world behind you in order to pass through this narrow gate. However, more narrow or wide gates those people, they bring everything with them. These people that, that come to God or they, they come to uh, w- with hopes of salvation, they come to their gate with this broad path, bringing everything that they have, holding dear to everything that they've built or that they possess. And they come to God thinking that accomplishes something. This wide gate is what leads to destruction. We'll expound on that a little bit later. But also there's other obvious implications. Many people are going to find this broad path. It's a convenient path, right? If it's well-trod, if it's beaten down, most people are going to walk on this path. Even if you're not bringing a lot of stuff, it's just more convenient. And so Jesus, there are other implications where Jesus is just encouraging his disciples. Hey, if you guys find yourself going with the rest of the world, going with the culture, that should be a red flag if we find everyone in culture agreeing with everything that we have to say, that should be somewhat concerning. We've talked about this over and over here at Summit is that that doesn't mean that Christians should just try to be inflammatory, right? And just try to get everyone on our bad side because, well, we gotta be on a narrow path. Uh, This isn't some permission to make everyone hate us. However, if we do find ourselves going along with everything that culture has to offer us, we may be walking on a more broad path. Progressive Christianity uh, kind of touts this idea uh, that God's grace is broad, right? It's, it's wide, it accepts everybody. And this is in direct conflict with what Jesus is talking about here. What Christ is calling his disciples to do is to leave the world behind them and with no hope of bringing anything through this narrow gate. And this is what Christ warns his disciples to be careful of, is be careful of the paths that we choose. What are we holding so closely to? What is preventing us from passing through this narrow gate? Do we carry so much in our lives and cling so tightly to things that prevent us from passing through this narrow gate? Or do we cling to Christ and Christ alone? 
The next point is that Christ warns his disciples to be careful of the influences in our lives. So Christ warns his disciples to be careful of the influences in our lives. Here in verse 15, we'll read this section one more time. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So this idea of cutting down something and throwing something into a fire, right? This is idiomatic of judgment. And so uh, Jesus is, uh, is introducing this concept of judgment uh, and he's gonna make that more explicit when he gets into the next section. It says, not everyone who will say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven. We'll again, talk about that a little later. But Christ is warning his disciples to be careful of false prophets. Now, false prophets generally uh, relates to false teachers, right? Or teachers within the community or in the church. However, this isn't always necessarily the case. False prophets could be anyone within the community uh, that is just attempting or claiming to speak on behalf of God. So I think both apply here and both are very important. Christ is warning his disciples, be careful of who influences your life. Pay attention to who they are and pay attention to the fruit that they produce. And he uses a, a bit of a ridiculous example of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, obviously, this isn't a, a common occurrence in nature, right? <laughs> but it, uh, he does kind of scale the examples to something that's so overt that would be, should be obvious to most people. A wolf in sheep's clothing um, it should be somewhat easy to spot, right? <laughs> if you're paying at least a little bit of attention. But then he, his next examples get a little bit more, I guess, harder to discern. For example, uh, a, a grape growing on thorn bushes or thorn thistles, right? Sometimes thistles look like vines. And so you look at a thistle or you look at a grapevine and you start asking yourself, well, which is it? And it's hard to tell the difference. And Christ is saying, well, does it make grapes? then it's probably a grapevine. And so this, this is where things start getting a little bit more ambiguous. Uh, and then he moves on to another example of a bad tree and a good tree. Now, especially in the off season, a tree's a tree, right? Now that gets very difficult to discern. And so not only do you need to wait for the fruit with the grapes, at least you see some fruit and you know what it is. With a tree, you have to wait for the fruit to mature and then analyze the fruit in order for you to determine if the tree is a good tree or a bad tree. So you see how Christ is scaling the analogies to something that's a little bit more explicit, something that's a little bit harder to discern and something that requires a little bit more discernment. And false prophets kind of come to Christ's disciples in this same way. False prophets, uh, in the case, uh, back to last, uh, last week, uh, in the case of prosperity gospel, uh, this sometimes gets very overt. 
Sometimes you listen to some of these prosperity gospel preachers uh, and it's, it, it's not rocket science, right? You can determine, yeah, these guys aren't reading the same scripture uh, that we're reading. They're not worshiping the same Christ that we worship. And this is actually kind of this idea, uh, this word ravenous wolf. Um, obviously, that's, that's a great translation, ravenous wolf. It fits the analogy. But this word ravenous also uh, is translated elsewhere in the scripture uh, as, um, as swindler or cheat. We actually see that uh, present in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. I'd like us to read that passage. Because Christ warns us to watch out, beware of false prophets. But then in 1 Corinthians 5, we see Paul talking about the same idea. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with greedy and swindlers or ravenous or with idolaters or then you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you to not associate it with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or a greedy person or idolater or is verbally abusive or habitually drunk or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. Now this passage is a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? We read this passage and there is a a direct uh, implication that it is the responsibility of the church to actually remove these immoral people from within the community but the church is supposed to be inclusive, right? I mean, that, that is kind of the idea of the church is if, if you're broken, like get in here, right? Find Christ. And yet in 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul makes it very explicit that if there's a sexually immoral person, a greedy person, an idolater, verbally abusive, habitually drunk, or a swindler or ravenous, that those people should be dismissed or removed from among yourselves. This is a biblical imperative, uh, and this is something that I think the American church has generally tried to shy away from, is this idea of church discipline. It is necessary, and even Christ tells us to beware of these false prophets. Now, Christ makes it clear uh, that the good or the bad tree is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now that's not our responsibility, right? Again, this is, a, this is a, uh, an idiom of judgment. So we do know it, that in the end, God will be the one uh, that judges these people. Uh, and there's also parallel passages uh, or parables that talk about this. Uh, Jesus gives a parable of a landowner uh, and his rival sows uh, weeds in the field. And so the wheat and the tares grow up together. And then the people who work the field, they say, well, should we tear up the tares? Should we rip out the weeds? And the owner says, no, no, no. Because if you do that, you're going to rip up the wheat, or the wheat with it. So instead, we wait for harvest and then everything will be cut down. Once we have determined what's wheat and what's tares, the tares will be burned. So this is important. 
where we need to recognize that just like Paul said, don't judge the outside world, that's not your job. Instead, our responsibility belongs with the community. And as a community, particularly the leaders within the community, it is their responsibility to protect the sheep and to be a good under shepherd in feeding and protecting God's church. Now, again, this does get a little complicated because how is it that some, some, some of these false prophets uh, are a little bit more difficult to identify? So he says, pay attention to their fruit. So what are they producing? And again, if you have a wolf in your flock, right? What's it producing? Well, I don't ever have to shear that sheep because it's not producing wool. Might be a red flag, right? Or that, that sheep doesn't ever produce lambs, it produces cubs. That's a problem. That thorn bush or thistle, uh, that doesn't ever produce any grapes. It's probably not a grapevine. Or that tree, it seems to only produce bad fruit. And that may be an indication. And so what Christ is calling his disciples to pay attention to is beware of the false prophets because they are ravenous. They are swindlers. They seek to consume the congregation. They seek to consume the church. Now, again, this gets more explicit with say prosperity gospel, right? God wants to bless you with all this money. And so you have to demonstrate your faith. And what's the best way to demonstrate your faith? By giving me your money, right? It's pretty easy to see, like a ravenous wolf that's wearing sheep clothes. Might be a little bit more easier to see. But what about thistles growing with grapevines? That might be a little bit more difficult to see, but it's still robbing the nutrients from that vine, isn't it? It's still taking, it's consuming something. Or even the bad tree, it's distracting others from the good tree. Sometimes these false prophets could just be simply desiring to distract the church or make the church less effective at producing its own fruit, like a thistle and the grapevine. So identifying these false prophets, sometimes it's going to be more easily recognized, but sometimes it's going to be not so easily recognized. And sometimes these false prophets might only desire your attention and your affections, and that's it. And that can seem subtle, and that can seem easy to give into, but Christ is warning his disciples, be careful of the influences in our lives. And the last point is that Christ warns his disciples to be careful of our relationship with our God. And this uh, leads us to arguably the most terrifying passage in the scripture. So let's read this one more time. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, a couple of asides before we dig into the obvious uh, terrifying nature of this. Um, just a couple notes for you. Um, I've heard this passage used quite a bit to argue uh, that, uh, that this is evidence that Christians can lose our salvation, right? 
Uh, these individuals, they, they shout out, Lord, Lord. They, they claim Jesus as Lord. They even did good works for God, but now they don't get to enter into the kingdom. And that's indicative of them losing their faith or losing their salvation. Um, so we are not going to get into that debate, uh, the whole eternal security. Um, my only point or my aside, what I would like to make clear to you um, is that if you want to argue that point, you just can't use this passage. This passage does not teach this in any way. And it makes it very clear in just their conversation with the Lord. They, it says that they say, or ev- not everyone who says, present tense, to me, Lord, Lord. This isn't a past event. This is an ongoing and present event. And they say, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord. Even on the day of judgment, uh, they still are calling him Lord. This isn't something that they lost and now they're just like, uh, they just remember magically. This is not, these are not individuals that were saved, but then didn't enter the kingdom. These are people that Jesus even says, I never knew you. And this is kind of the final point with that is that Jesus never had a relationship with these individuals, at least a relationship that's indicative of his disciples. So if you want to argue that Christians can lose their salvation, you just certainly cannot use this passage. Another point that I'd like to make clear is that some, some say and some argue, well, Jesus never claimed to be God while he was on earth, right? Uh, that came later. Uh, Paul and, uh, and the New Testament writers, they kind of deified Christ after his, uh, after his death. Um, yeah, Jesus seems to disagree here. <laughs> Uh, he, he says, he seems to be, he's, Jesus seems to think that he's the one that's actually differentiating the people that actually get into the kingdom and the people that stay out of the kingdom. Now, if you know anything about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, this was a responsibility of Yahweh himself. And Yahweh was the one that actually meets out justice on the day of the Lord. And yet Jesus seems to think here that uh, the people that are pleading their case, they're pleading it to him. And then Jesus is the one that's making the decision, no, 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 I never knew you. And Jesus even gives some stipulations. It's like he's making up the rules. It's, it's almost like he's God or something. He's the one that actually says, it's the people who do the will of my father. Those are the ones who enter. And another stipulation that he seems to make clear is that they must have a relationship with him or rather that he knows them. And so the people that don't enter are the ones who don't do the will of the Father and the ones who don't have a relationship with him. Now, again, just want to make this point clear. Who is it? Who, uh, the only ones that can enter into the kingdom are the ones who do the will of the Father. And throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been giving us his stipulations. This is what it looks like to follow the will of my Father. And who of us could follow these rules? These rules are far more restrictive than what the Old Testament even uh, tried to argue. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount up until this point has been, you can't do this. And it would be odd for us to take this passage as suddenly some kind of indicative that we can now get into the kingdom of heaven. Let me make this clear. The one who does the will of the Father is Jesus Christ. The way that we enter into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ. So now let's, uh, let's get into the uncomfortable parts of this. 
These individuals, they claim Lord, Lord, they profess with their mouth, uh, and they even do uh, some pretty incredible things. Uh, They prophesy in the name of Christ. Uh, Now, Jesus just told us that false prophets come, so that shouldn't surprise us, uh, false Christians claiming to be prophets. That's not shocking. Um, And then he says that uh, they will also say that they cast out demons in his name. Uh, That's a little bit more restrictive. Uh, We do see that. Uh, We see the sons of Sceva in the the book of Acts. Uh, They try to cast out a demon in Jesus's name uh, and the demon just beats him up because of it. They tried though, right? We do know that this is, this is an attempt. Uh, we also see in Mark 9, we see some people uh, casting out demons in Jesus's name. Uh, and John doesn't like that because he's like, well, they don't follow us. And Jesus is like, who cares about you, right? They're doing it in my name. So we do know that, uh, that other people, uh, they do cast out demons in Jesus's name. Now in Mark 9's situation, it's not clear whether they were doing it for the kingdom of Christ or if they were doing it for selfish gains. None of that is, is clear in Mark 9. However, what is clear is that this, is, this does seem to be some kind of practice, casting out demons, uh, but that's, very more, that's a lot more restrictive. What creates some problems is they actually claim that they performed many miracles in Jesus's name. Now that seems far more restrictive. Now there's some debate on this, right? Um, Are these miracles being uh, kind of empowered by demonic forces? Uh, Did they somehow have access to the Holy Spirit even though they were not saved themselves? Uh, I think that's a distraction from this conversation or from this passage. Uh, This word miracles can also just be translated and maybe in some of your translations that actually says this, it says powerful works. And I think that, uh, that also captures this idea is that these individuals, they claim to do great works in the name of Christ. Amazing things. And they all do it in the name of Christ. And they're professing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. But then Jesus says, I never knew you. And the reason why this is particularly difficult is Jesus just told us about false prophets. Beware of the false prophets because they look like brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we should look at their fruits, right? What do they do? What do they produce? These guys are casting out demons. When's the last time you cast out a demon? This is what makes this passage so terrifying. It's because these individuals are fully convinced that they're entering the kingdom of God. And if these people profess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they're doing good works, seemingly producing good fruit, and they're fully convinced that they're getting into heaven, how do I know that that's not me? How do I know that I'm not the one that's calling Jesus my Lord and I'm doing everything I can to live a life that's worthy of his call? and I have full faith that Christ is going to save me in the end, how do I know that that's not me? You can't debate their authenticity. They, they fully believe this. This is what makes this passage particularly torturous. It's because it really calls into question the salvation of us all, doesn't it? And this is what Christ is warning his disciples Christ is warning his disciples to be careful of our relationship with God. Now this passage flies in the face of what is called, often called easy believism. 
If you're not sure what that is, um, most people that preach easy believism, they go to Romans 10.9, and I'd like for us to read that passage. Romans 10.9, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved or just roll the dice and hope Jesus doesn't cast you out at the end. You will be saved. And so often this passage is used to say, just confess with your mouth. And I, I've heard this before um, and I struggled with this as a kid um, and maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention, right? To be fair, <laughs> I had ADHD pretty bad as a kid. So it may have just been my fault. But this idea that you just need to say a magic prayer, almost like an incantation, uh, and try to get salvation to kick off. And every Wednesday and Sunday, I would confess Christ and try to get saved. And then throughout the rest of the week, feel like I wasn't saved. And I'd just try again next week and hope that this week, maybe it would kick off, right? This easy believism that you just need to say the magic word. You just need to, to pray this sinner's prayer and then you get your hell insurance. I think Jesus disagrees with this, right? He says, no, these people call me Lord. And in fact, they even act on it. And it still wasn't enough for them. And so what is Paul talking about in Romans 10? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead, you will be saved. And I think that's a critical component. It's that second half of the verse. Believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, why would that be this differentiating part? And how do we know that the people in Matthew 7 don't believe? Well, the fact is we don't really know that. Jesus didn't tell us their heart posture. We don't get that information in Matthew 7. What we do know is in Matthew 7, we do hear their intentions or their motivations. And so if you paid attention, it says um, they... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many miracles? You see, the motivation behind these individuals in Matthew 7 is that they are the ones that are acting out these works. Their motivation is that they are working their way into heaven. I deserve the kingdom I'll prove it to you, Jesus. I did all these works. I cast out demons. I prophesied. I did miracles in your name. That's proof. And I think that's the issue here. And that's why Christ said, I never knew you. And I think that's what's reflected in Romans 10. Yes, you must confess with your mouth, but you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the reason why we know this to be true, if we look at John 9, and I told you there was two stipulations. One stipulation is you must have a relationship with Christ. He must know you. And um, the will of the Father, the only people that enter into heaven is the will of the Father. But I already told you the only one who does the will of the Father perfectly is Christ. So what we find in John 9, I believe clarifies this issue. John 9, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, and this is the will of him who sent me 
that of everything that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. What Paul is talking about in Romans 10 is that if you do not believe that Christ is raised from the dead, you cannot believe in your own resurrection. If you do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, how could you ever hope to be raised yourself in Christ? What is required for salvation is that yet you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, just like in Matthew 7. However, the other stipulation is that you must believe that Christ is raised from the dead. Why? Because if he's not raised from the dead, he can't raise me from the dead. And this is the most critical component. And this is the will of the father. Jesus, or yeah, Jesus even says it in John nine. This is the will of the father. The will of the father is that I lose nothing. For this is the will of the father that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life and Jesus will raise them on the last day. The reason why these disciples or so-called brothers in Matthew 7, why they were cast out, why they didn't, Jesus didn't have this relationship with them is because they were coming to Christ with their works. And Christ said, you didn't ask me to save you. You tried to save yourself. Do you see the difference here? This is the will of the father that Christ saves you, not your works. Now, if you're not convinced, I totally understand. How do we get that in the text? Is Jesus making this clear in this text in Matthew 7? Is Jesus making it clear that the works is the thing that actually, or reliance on the works is the thing that separates them from Christ? And he does. In verse 23, I'll read it again. It says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, uh, at least in the NASB translation, if you see something in all capital letters, generally that passage is a quote from an Old Testament passage. So Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here and that should raise some flags. What is he quoting? What's the context of what he's quoting? Why is he quoting it? What Jesus is quoting is Psalm 6. And I'd like for us to read Psalm 6 to get a little bit more uh, clearer of an indication of what the disciples would have heard when they heard Jesus say the words, leave me, you who practice lawlessness. When they heard that, they immediately would have thought Psalm 6, which is David saying, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am frail. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are horrified and my soul is greatly horrified. But you, Lord, how long? Return, Lord, rescue my soul. Save me from, because of your mercy. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will praise you? I am weary with my sighing and every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. My eyes has... My eye has wasted away with grief. It has grown old because of my enemies. And this is the quote, leave me all you who practice injustice. 
For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping and the Lord has heard my pleading. The Lord receives my prayers. All my enemies will be put to shame and greatly horrified and they shall turn back and they will suddenly be put to shame. Now this quote isn't, uh, isn't quite uh, line up with what Jesus said and I'll explain that. Uh, what, uh, what Psalm 6 says is, leave me, all you who practice injustice. Uh, this is translated from the Hebrew text, uh, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Uh, the New Testament writers uh, almost exclusively quote the Septuagint. And if we read the Septuagint, what Jesus says here is exactly carbon copied right out of Psalm 6. And that's why when we see Jesus saying it, he says, leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, how would Psalm 6 indicate that the thing that separates these disciples in Matthew 7, how would that passage prove to us that the thing that separates them is a reliance on works and not on Christ? The reason why is because in Psalm 6, what we find is David hopelessly broken about his sin. Again, what we see David doing is he's crying out to God, do not rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Why? Because I'm frail. I can't handle it. He goes on and begs the Lord, heal me. My bones are horrified. He says, rescue my soul, save me because of your mercy. You see the posture of David here. He's, he's weeping. Why? Because he's broken. He can't save himself. David recognizes that everything he has to offer to God, everything that he brings to the table is worthless. His only hope is that the Lord come to him and save him. This is the only hope in David's mind. And then David ends this thought with, leave me those who practice lawlessness. David recognizes, I have no communion with you. Those who practice lawlessness, I have nothing to do with you. My posture is brokenness and depravity. And those who practice injustice or practice lawlessness, they have no communion with me. And they have no communion with God. Now, who are these ones who practice lawlessness? Christ expands this, he explains this, and that's why he puts it into this text. The ones who practice lawlessness are the ones who rely on their works. And he contrasts those who rely on their works with David. That's why he quotes David here. What's the difference between these people who are calling out, Lord, Lord, I did all these works, and the difference between those people and David? The difference is these people are standing up they're pleading their case to Christ. They're giving him evidence that we deserve this. We earned the kingdom. And what's David doing? His bed is floating away in his tears. He's totally bereaved and broken. He's sobbing. His eyes are worn out. David recognizes that he cannot save himself. And that's what Christ is warning his disciples to be careful of. Christ warns his disciples to be careful of our relationship with God, our posture 
before God. This passage is absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying if we think that we can do anything to earn our salvation. However, this passage is deeply comforting for everyone who's on their knees next to David, begging God, please save me. I can't do this. I can't save myself. I can't take your anger. I can't take your wrath. I'm too frail. I'm too broken. I need your, I need your grace. I need you to show me your mercy. I have no hope otherwise. These are the people that Christ knows. And those who come to Christ with works, even mighty works, like miracles, that does nothing for Christ. Because I never knew you. Just like John 9 says, the will of the Father is that Christ raises you up on the, on the last day. If we've never relied on Christ to be raised up, why would we expect to get into his kingdom? It's Christ that raises us. It's not us. It's Christ that saves us. It's not our good works. And I think this clarifies the very uncomfortable nature of what Christ just said. Beware of the ravenous wolves. Right? Look at their fruit. What are they producing? And we all naturally say, well, do they produce good fruits? Are they doing good works? And Christ says, nah, that's not important to me. What's important to me is that their reliance on me, their recognition of depravity, their recognition that I'm the one that saves them. That's the fruit. So how do we beware of false prophets? How do we differentiate the ravenous wolves? Sometimes that's easier, but sometimes it's far more subtle. How do we know what's a good tree and what's the bad tree? What is the fruit that we should be looking for? And if we ever find ourselves, or if we find a brother and sister within our church who thinks that their good works does something for their salvation, we need to help that brother and sister recognize that they've done nothing for salvation. We are saved by a work, and that is the work of Christ. It is not by our own works. So as we consider this warning, again, Christ warns his disciples to be careful of our relationship with God. We need to constantly ask ourselves, what is this posture that we approach God with? Do we approach God with some kind of expectation that our works accomplished something? Do we approach God with some kind of um, entitlement that he owes us some kind of kingdom or even some kind of blessing because we've done something in his name. We need to be careful about our relationship with God. Brother and sister, if you think that you can save yourself or if you think your good works gets you into heaven, I strongly ask you to reconsider. Consider the posture of David. And consider why is it that Jesus seems to think that these people who claim Jesus as Lord, they profess with their mouth that he's Lord and they do good works. Why is it that he is contrasting them with David who finds himself on his knees, weeping and begging God for mercy? 
So as we go throughout our week, I want us to keep this in mind and remember that Christ is giving his disciples warnings. He's giving you warnings. Please be careful of the paths that we choose and the things that we cling on to that prevent us from passing through narrow gates. Please be careful of the influences in your life. Ravenous wolves are sometimes more obvious than others. And this goes for Ovi and me and Raz, right? If, we fi- if you find us and we're, just, we're, we're desperate for your attention or for your approval, that would be us distracting you from the gospel. Don't allow it. But be careful of the influences in your life. And lastly, please be careful of your relationship with God and recognize that the only reason why we have any communion with God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our everything. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.